Well, I'm talking with Dr. David Jones, who is uh, one of the founders of functional medicine, uh, the uh, president of the Institute of Functional Medicine for 15 years and is uh, currently on the board of directors of the Institute for Functional Medicine and clearly has a lot of wisdom and uh, quite a bit of clinical experience. Of course, you are well aware of the JAM article um, late last year on the um, functional medicine model of care um, and, uh, and quality of life outcomes and how they found uh, uh, the functional medicine model uh, had a higher quality of life. And, uh, and I wonder if you could comment on just what you thought was the most important thing that came out of that article that, um, that was published uh, by the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine? Well, one of the core values and one of the core MOs that is part of functional medicine is listening. The notion that the person knows more about themselves than you do as a practitioner, you know more about physiology and, and many of the pathways to dysfunction, but which ones are important to the patient? There's a, uh, a presence, a listening, compassionate presence that allows that to emerge to where the patient then begins to take, uh, to start that journey of healing, not because of what you have told them to do, but what has emerged from the relationship of listening, compassionate listening. Where do you think that's going to lead? What kind of um, further evidence uh, do you think uh, functional medicine should be trying to push forward? Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because first you have a study that shows that an outcome is how uh, the people felt that their quality of life was improved. It would be go, go back they did that with those big studies that were done at Vanderbilt. The first one was healers, where they studied people who supposedly had healing qualities in their clinical practice. And then they did something that was much more useful. They went back and asked each one of those participants, it was 50 different healthcare practitioners that were analyzed uh, by Churchill and David Shank. Uh, and the next, the second book that came in study that came out of it was called What our patients teach us. And basically they went back and, and asked patients, what, what was it about your experience with your practitioner that people felt that there was a healing presence in the context of that care? And I think that's what we need to do because certainly uh, the study that came out, what our patients uh, tell us or teach us, uh, that's, that's what they found. And I, I think we way, way underestimate, way underestimate the power of our presence as compassionate co-journeyers with our patients using what we know and putting it out on the table at appropriate times that the patient is empowered to be the one that chooses. We do not say uh, we are looking for compliance. We're looking for engagement. It's a different attitude. And that's why any study that we do will probably show that people feel a higher quality of life came from it because they begin to understand their part in it. 
when I retired last year, I had the experience of my wife, Kathy, saying we have to have a celebration, and we decided to do that. We invited 150 patients that had been in the practice for years. 350 showed up. And what we ended up doing was talking about what was so special, not about David Jones, but what was so special about being in a clinic that you were listened to and you co-created, co-created answers. You weren't given answers. You co-created them with the practitioner being a listener and a advocate and the patient being as honest as possible about what their life really is about. And where, where did the perturbations occur in such a way that they are less healthy now than they were before? So it wasn't a diagnosis and a pill. It was a diagnosis and then a question, a very sincere question, why and how did this happen? What's the origins of this? That's why people come to functional medicine practitioners because that's what they hear. We listen and we co-create answers. That's such a key word of co-creation. I think that's important to continue to uh, talk about and think about and, and see how we can do that or continue to do that with the patients we're seeing. Uh, an article you wrote in actually a couple of years ago, and you it was an article on the experience of, of healing and um, uh, describing the patient's journey and uh, what that you know, kind of journey was and that recursive journey. Well, this, this paper, which eventually was published in the British Medical Journal, and the title was Healing Journey, a Qualitative Analysis of the Healing Experiences of Americans Suffering from Trauma and Illness. And it was five um, doctors that are part of the Institute for Integrative Health, not medicine, but integrative health, that we wanted to see if there was a way for us to see if there were common, commonalities to this thing we call the journey of healing. And the, the paper grew out of that. We had, 20, we had extensive transcriptions on 23 people who got into this study originally, not our study, but a study on healing and uh, suicide. And these 23 people were selected by their practitioners to be sent into this project with Dr. John Glenn Scott, who was the lead author of the original paper and the transcripts, extensive transcripts. We got together by phone communication and, and retreats uh, and studied all 23 of these for three years. And what we found was there was a commonality that was striking, that uh, there's an injury, uh, either a physical or emotional, and usually both, that uh, is life-changing in a negative way. And uh, in the process, that journey of trying to understand the underlying problem, and then what we found was that everyone that made it and making it and they didn't commit suicide all of them in the interview made it very clear that more than once they had considered suicide but there were certain things that were common to all of them one of them was that they all had somebody in their life that believed in them and one of them uh, was his dog which was a striking finding for us because he said yes i have many times committed 
considered suicide, but I knew that the people around me that were part of my problem would just put him to sleep if I, if I committed suicide. And my dog is the only one that's been unstintingly supportive and non-judgmental about me. My dog loves me and I'm not gonna commit suicide so that then he's killed. And it was striking to find that everybody has somebody in their life. One person had a doctor that just, that the patient was a very troubling patient to the office. And it was obvious that it was an attempt to get the doctor to say, there's something wrong with you because her father and her brother raped her from age six until adulthood. And when she could leave home and she, uh, as you might imagine, had trusting issues and other issues that had to depend. One of them was, how does she fit into the medical system? And one of the things that she said really helped was her doctor, when she would be very negative and take two steps back after one step forward, she, he would say, you know, the fact that you even are alive shows me that you have amazing resilience and that there's not something defective about you. There was something horrible that was done to you. And that woman is a very successful head of a department of rape uh, counseling. And in each one of the cases, every one of those 23 people became helpers in some way. Something about reframing your life that instead of the terrible thing that happened to you, destroying your life, it gave you strength to help people understand that there's always hope and there's skills and remediation that can occur. For each person, it was somewhat different. I mean, for that one man, it was his pet. For other people, it had to do with spiritual practices. Other people, like the one that had a doctor that was so supportive of her, was a health professional. There were people that um, found their journey back. But in every situation, we called it iterative because they said it, they had to learn skills. It's, it's what we have found in smoking cessation that oddly enough, the more times that you have failed stopping smoking, the better chance the next time you will have acquired an additional skill that when that dialogue starts, you just say, well, I've heard this voice before and I'm not going to smoke. And we called it an iterative process because it's a herky-jerky forward progress, but a lot of falling back into old patterns. Eventually what happens is what we call reframing, which means that that, that impossibly horrible experience that they've had was reframed into an experience that gives them unusual insight of some sort and they can use that insight to help other people. And in almost all cases, uh, there was a back and forth iterative process of developing skills, uh, self-acceptance, and then helping others and an emergence of hope. And in that hope came a reframing and a sense of their own empowerment and an increase in their sense of uh, self-efficacy, that they could actually, as a person, have a profound uh, effect on their healing. In this, it really is five-year process, 
trying to understand this journey of healing, it became obvious that a lot of this ties in with the research that comes under the title um, Adverse Childhood Experiences and how those adverse childhood experiences create adaptations that work at that young age, but don't work in adulthood. And that that has to be looked at as a the next step in the healing. And that uh, with adverse uh, adverse childhood experiences, one of the quandaries has always been, there's no better survey for a population in terms of predicting wellness and chronic illness in a group. That uh, looking at adverse childhood experiences is so powerful that it wins its way through a person's life. But it's not very good at predicting the individual in that population. And it's because there is the possibility of the emergence of hope, self-acceptance, and then eventually reframing, taking responsibility and becoming positive about their life. That's why uh, this article that we put together in the graphic that goes with it was considered a brilliant breakthrough because it shows a reproducible pattern of how healing occurs when there's been adverse experiences, either in childhood or adulthood. Well, thanks, David, and thanks for um, taking a few minutes to answer these questions.